podcast ain't played nobody. Bill and Godfrey here. Uh, it is a very special edition, capital V, capital S, uh, because we have guests. We always promise guests and we never actually have guests. Uh, but we, this is very special, Godfrey. This is, um, I think normally we, we end up doing breakouts during the off season, but um, what we have here is legitimate new subject matter inside of our um, often hyperbolic and, and usually goofy world of college football that we didn't want to jam into a segment especially when we're recapping S&P Plus standings on a timer and or trying to cram 25 game previews into an episode. So, Bill, without further ado, let's, let's do some introductions. That sounds like a very good idea. So with us today, we have, we, there are four of us. We are going to step the hell all over each other, and I apologize in advance, but, you know, so be it. All right, so first we've got Richard Johnson, uh, a, new, a, a new old employee of SB Nation. Uh, came on for the football season. Love it. I love this team we've got going for college football this year. And uh, if you go to the front page of SBNation.com today, at the very top, you will see Tyler Tynes, 96 Hours in Charlotte. He is also on today. We are going to have a four-way conversation uh, about some of the, about, yeah, the realities that are seeping into our our sports distractions here uh, in ways that are very, very important and very, very annoying to certain parts of the population. So. Y'all going to be mad as hell? Mm-hmm. The meme was coming. Hi, Tyler. So, Tyler, like I said, uh, if you curse, you will get yelled at by people on our podcast. Yeah, fuck y'all. <laughs> we out the gate. All right. I feel like this is, I feel like this is uh, a podcast like that TV show back in the 70s and 80s where, like, they, like, stop it at the beginning and they're like, hello, this is a very They look directly episode. at the camera, yeah. This is a very it's that Different Strokes episode. Where, yeah, it's that Different Strokes episode where they, they, they were trying to touch little boys. <laughs> on a much more serious <laughs> note, Rich, I was... Asked, I think three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago. I don't even know if there had been football played, but it was it was when the Kaepernick protest started. Really, more when the reaction started. And I'm pretty sure we had two or three questions in the same episode of, "Do you think this will fall into the college football realm?" I know that we talked about one that logistics prevent. Sometimes it's not the NFL. Players aren't even out during the national anthem. And two, my assumption was. The control that's evident, that's you know clear as day in college football versus really any other sport, um, I would say even more so than other college sports, um, I thought we wouldn't see as much as we have in terms of individual expression and really anyone making a statement, let alone um, cultures where we're seeing marching bands now, we're seeing... We're seeing evidence of student bodies getting behind players. We're also seeing a, a reaction to that. When when Kaepernick first happened, Richard, did you think it would happen in college football at all? No, for the logistical reason more than anything else. Um, I So just some background for the listener. I went to Florida, um, and so I – and I'm also from Gainesville, Florida. Um, so I grew up going to Florida games um, and then obviously went to school there and started covering the team when I was a junior in college. Um, and so I, I forgot that college football players essentially everywhere aren't out during the national anthem. Like it just, I, I just never thought about it. And then I, somebody that I used to work on the beat with, um, made a point on Twitter about that and was saying, you know, I don't think this, the Kaepernick thing maybe is outward in college, um, in the college ranks because the players aren't out. And that's when I started thinking, huh. They're not. So I wonder if we're really going to see this. Um, but I think it boils down to um, the fact that college athletes, although they are as controlled as any, uh, as any professional sport in the country, um, they, are, they're, they still all have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, or all four. Like they're, they don't live in a bubble as much as their coaches would probably like. Um, and they are going to see these things and they are now going to see Kaepernick and, and other athletes at the professional ranks that they look up to. They're going to see them. Um, they're going to see them make their stands and, and, and deliver their message in the way that they're going to do it. And then these college athletes are going to internalize that. And now more than ever, these college athletes are starting to think, what can I do on my platform to speak out? And that's not just about race. You've got Josh Rosen talking about the NCAA and things like things of that nature. Um, you've got the Northwestern players unionizing the other day. Um, the O'Bannon thing. It, it, 
everywhere they look, they are seeing people connected to college sports, um, whether they, they are still playing or not anymore, speaking out. And they, I think when these, these college players look around, they start to see that and they start to say, like, how can I do that? Because these college athletes now realize they have the power. And that's the thing that for a lot of years, they, they, the, those in power tried to keep it suppressed as much as they could. But now more than ever, these college athletes are looking around and saying, like, we've got a platform and we can do something about it. And there's nothing you can do to stop us. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, I, li- I, I do live in Columbia, Missouri. That was something that was made very evident last year, not only not only in the fact that uh, a group of student athletes were able to at least momentarily uh, put themselves in a position to stop a football game from happening, uh, but that they didn't lose their scholarships. They didn't actually, all the, all the tough talk that they, that came in response about, yeah, that's the, you know, you, you got to follow our rules. You shouldn't be on scholarship anymore. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, that, that didn't work. Um, and you know, who knows what would happen if it happened again here. Uh, but I don't think, I, I don't think it would work then either. So it was just, it was big, tough talk versus actual, uh, commitment to action in the action one. So I, exactly. I definitely think that. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're for the administrators or whatever, especially at Mizzou, you're, you're not going to shut this down. You're not going to kick these players off. You're not going to risk the short-term future of the program and the long-term future of the program, just because you don't like the message and black empowerment. Like you don't have the balls to do that. I'm sorry. Like you just don't, you understand that in a sense you are owned by the exploits of these mostly African-American workforce on a field every Saturday. That's what your salary is tied to. That's what your school status is, is tied to. That's what your school's enrollment is tied to. That's why you have all this SEC money rolling in. Um, you know, you are not going to stop the gravy train, and you don't really have a choice in the matter. All right, to be, to be, incredibly, to be incredibly negative here, or just maybe realistic or pragmatic, okay. how much of that... Well, how, I mean, I don't. I don't even know how to how to put a tone around that. But how much of this is just tied to recruiting? Oh well, plenty. Oh yeah, uh, I, like I don't. I don't think it's. I don't think it's out of the goodness of. And I even wrote this in that piece. I don't think it's out of the goodness of Jim Harbaugh's heart that he walked back his stance on Colin Kaepernick. No, 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 no. I would love. I would love for that to be the case. I would love for Jim Harbaugh's opinions on race to have evolved. And I, I hope to God, uh, you know, Mike Riley and Mike D'Antonio both uh, are as supportive as they came across in public. But look, you've got to go into black homes nine months out of the year and try to convince <laughs> black parents to let their black 17-year-olds come and live for four years in Ann Arbor or East Lansing or Lincoln. And they might be, you know, from, from, from wherever. Yeah, which are not the greatest places in the world, sorry. Great burger places, though. Um, but at, at the end of the day, these coaches understand that. And so they understand. And I guarantee you, somebody got in Jim Harbaugh's ear and said, hey, you know, we got to kind of save face here. And that's what Jim Harbaugh did. All right, Jim Harbaugh saved face with that tweet uh, the day, an hour and a half after he made that comment about Kaepernick. So yeah, everything in college football revolves around recruiting. We understand that the, acqui- the, the acquirement of talent um, is the most important thing. And so you've got to f- save face there if you get some egg on your face by saying something, you know, pretty dumb. So Tyler, the paradigm shifts, obviously, at the pro level. Uh, you just wrote a piece that's up right now on SB Nation, 96 Hours in Charlotte. Uh, but it would also be naive to assume that just because you're not under a student-athlete structure that there aren't uh, pervasive elements preventing you from speaking out at the professional level. Is I mean, that fair it's to super say? fair to say because pro athletes more so kind of suck because they like have a lot more power and freedom. So take somebody like Cam Newton, who's in Carolina, who's a major fixation of this piece and a reason why we went down there because Cam was super, super, super dope all last year. Like he invited a lot of black power. He invited a lot of black joy and, and everything surrounding a lot of folks within black culture who kind of saw Cam Newton were like, damn, hot damn, look at this big old black quarterback don't nobody like, that's sending racist letters to, that hates everything about him, just keep on winning, shitting on your favorite team, and dabbing on them folks. That was great. And then he lost Super Bowl to, like, the Larry Bird of football, which kind of sucked. But, like, then it was like, all right, well, fuck y'all, we coming back and we going to do this again. 
And then Cam was like, oh, by the way, I know y'all scared of me because I'm a big black dude playing a position that your favorite white people love. And that probably sucks for y'all. And we're all still kind of here for that. And then Cam was like, Cam probably got one of them Jerry Richardson phone calls. It was like, listen, fam, what your ass going to do is walk all that back because you lost. And you know you lost, so you're going to have to shut the hell up for a while. And Cam, instead of like kind of realizing that he was the LeBron James of his sport and had some of the most power you could possibly ever have for an athlete at this time period, he was just like, yes, sir. Which is probably the dumbest shit he could have done. So, well, you know. at the same time, LeBron lost a lot, though. I mean, I mean, no. I, 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 I think a lot of this might also have to do with the fact that, um, you know, whoever it was, Richardson or whoever, they they have probably talked him into trying to be a quote unquote model for you know post-racism, so to speak, or post the, the post-race world uh, in which everybody get, bring, is united together. Because that's what I hear when he talks is just basically, can we just move all past this and be together now? I mean, but you and can't that's move past not the way it that, works. Like, it's still going on. No. So, I mean, to like a lot of white folk, kind of folks, you know, that are in the mentions and the emails that I see every day in these streets, they're kind of just like, yo, we hired, <laughs> we got a black president, so we're in a post-racial America. Ain't no slaves out here. And you're kind of like... I mean, that sounds good, but the wealth gap, my G. Like, come on. So even with some of the small idiosyncrasies that the country still, like, oppresses black folks on, you can't really make a great argument of us being in a post-racial America. And the thing is that when you wake up and, and you are in this oppressive country and you're, like, it's because of it induced or kind of empowered by your skin tone and the, the advances that your culture has made for the goodmen of America and the corporation that it is, it's like, yo, you can't really just stay silent about this. And that kind of spills over into everything you do because it's a fixation of your life. So it's kind of hard for me to believe that Black athletes, especially within the NFL, can be really super quiet about this because they choose to be. Uh-uh. They don't choose to be. Somebody said, listen, fam, you ain't about to talk about this because you like your money and you only play three years in this league and you ain't got a degree. So because of that, you're going to shut the hell up and you're going to keep taking that money. And they say, for the most part, yes, sir. Uh, Richard, in your piece specifically, have you seen any reaction from fan bases? Michigan State is the one that comes to mind because they participated in protests early and then they started losing football games. So inevitably it seems that angry football fans would tie losing to Indiana to, quote, off-field distraction. Yeah, like, I actually I actually haven't gotten any of that. Um, to that, though, I would say get the hell out of here. Like, you lost because your quarterback isn't great and you can't hit a field goal against freaking Indiana. Like, I, you know, you're not losing because these black folks out here getting woke. Like, you know, it's just, it's just, it's such like a, just, just put in the email, you don't like black people speaking out. Like, that would just make my life so much easier, or make all of our lives so much easier. But you hide it, and you try to couch it, and you try to, you try to say, oh, we, we, we respect the protest, but we don't respect the way they're protesting. Or, right. you know, uh, like that ECU bullshit this morning that just got me so <laughs> upset Where, and it's just I, I actually have it pulled up and it's ECU uh the, the ESPN radio affiliate out of Fayetteville North Carolina says they won't uh play ECU's game against USF because the marching band uh kneeled down during some members I should say of the marching band kneeled down during the national anthem last Saturday and the direct quote is the band members could ha- could have quietly protested in the early morning hours before the game, but that would have required them to wake up early. That's part of the statement that the CEO of this radio company released. Like, dude, just say you want these black people to be seen and not heard or just say that you want these uh, these band members to be seen and not heard and that you don't care about whatever sensibility that they have. And our lives would be so much easier and we would know where you stood so much clearer. I mean, we know where this guy stands, but it, it's it, I understand that this guy wants to be able to look at himself in the mirror every night and 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 say to himself, I'm not a racist or I care about the plight of black people in this country, but it's so abundantly clear to me when you say things like that and when you do things like that, that you don't. 
Yeah, you are, you're welcome to protest as long as I don't have to see it. That's basically, well, that's, you know, when they talk about distractions, like, you know, Michigan State or whatever, that's, that's, that's what they mean. It, it distracted me. Um, and I think that's something that, that, that is so easy for, for, for people to, uh, to not understand is that uh, a black person is black all day. It, it isn't just during the football game where they decide <laughs> to be black and therefore, you know, and they, they make a, uh, you know, whatever it, it you're, that's, that's your life all day. It's not a distraction for you. It's life. And, and you're just, uh, you're, you're choosing to distract others, which is kind of what protest is about. If anything, if anything, if I'm a black athlete, like, it, it would it not make me feel like I'm playing a little bit freer, like I'm like I'm truly who I am because I'm I'm speaking out about these these issues that directly affect me every day, twenty four hours of the day. Like why why would it make me play play tighter? It would make me play freer, make me be freer. It it was a freeing experience for me to write my piece last or last week. It's one of the first things. Uh, one of the only things that I've really ever written about race, and it's the first time that I've personally um, felt like I've kind of stepped out kind of on the precipice of really being outward about what I feel about race and, and how I view race and how I view being black um, in 2016. And it like, you know, I, I had, and Tyler can speak to this, you know, I was, I was kind of chatting with Tyler and saying, you know, you do this every day or whatever, but you know, I don't really do this. Like, this is, this is crazy for me. Like I was, I was so nervous and all this stuff before we hit publish on the thing. And then we hit publish on the thing and it's like, you know, kind of a, a weight came off my shoulders and that's, that's me putting a, you know, a 2000 word story on our website. Like Lord only knows what it is for these football players who feel however it is that they feel, um, you know, being truly empowered by standing up during the national anthem and raising that fist and asserting themselves and asserting their blackness. Tyler, you were a college athlete. Yeah, it was dope. Uh, you were on scholarship. You were subject to, I, I mean, without going one-to-one on comparison, you were subject to some of the requirements, restrictions that are placed on, you know, let's say FBS, Power 5 football players in this instance. Uh, you were a student athlete as recently as when? 2015, y'all. Do you think when you were a freshman that had this, it, if we just walked that whole cycle back a couple years, it would have happened? Or do you think that this is, is this a convergence point where, where something finally broke and or is this something where Richard spoke to us earlier about just having so many social media platforms to where it's a toothpaste in the tube scenario for those who would try and clamp down on the expression. Now, keep in mind, guys, we're still... I want to say three years removed from the majority of Power Five coaches enacting social media bans, period, on anything yeah. on all of their players. Do you think this would have happened four years ago, Tyler? Uh, and, and, I mean, the thing is that it really doesn't matter what, what level of athletics that you're at. Like, I was a Division Three athlete who got uh, grants from the school and from, you know, other, other, other folks to just do my sport, you know. And they, they were kind of labeled under athletic grants. I didn't have to pay back. But, like, you're still susceptible to the same rules that everybody else is going to be susceptible to at the same time. You still have coaches who really don't understand like you <laughs> as a black athlete, you know, like, I mean, I was on a cross country team full of white kids and only the black in the team was legitimately from Kenya. So nobody truly kind of understood shit we were talking about at most times. So that's kind of how that went on every wrestling team I was on in high school and in college. I was the only black kid on that team. Nobody really understood why I listened to Kanye West before we went out on the mats because it got me hype and I didn't listen to like, I don't know, um, pick a country song. So the thing is, like, it really doesn't matter, like, whether this was going to happen three years ago, whether it would happen right now. The thing is that the understanding from the majority is that this they didn't know this was going to happen. That's the best part, is that no one really understood this was going to blow up. It's the same kind of understanding around the fact that, like, people didn't think that these protests, whether it be Ferguson, Baltimore, Milwaukee, Charlotte, wherever, were going to happen. Because you can only be so mad and so black for so long before it becomes to a combustible point. And most black people you know have had those points at work, at home, in front of their kids, at church, uh, yesterday when I was eating a sandwich. Like, it happens. You know what I mean? Like, you can't be black for so long and also be within this country and not have this, like, breaking point multiple times over, like, your lifetime where you're not pissed about some shit. W.E.B. Du Bois said a long-ass time ago that having this level of double consciousness, excuse me, I should say Baldwin said that, like, to be black and to be woke, or at least conscious, is to be in a rage all the time. 
I'm mad like every day. So the thing is like you can't reach a level of social consciousness within the United States and knowingly know what they've done to people who look like you as as early as last week and still be comfortable and okay with the fact that this goes on. And a lot of the conversation behind this is like, we just see black athletes doing this. Why don't we see white athletes doing this? The same reason you don't see white people on your Twitter page getting down with all those woke things you saying, because they don't give a fuck. And the real thing here is like, it's not that I need you to respect the Nebraska football players for what they did. It's not that I need you to walk back a comment if you're a hardball. It's not that I need you to even have a semblance of getting down with what Colin Kaepernick or protesters around the United States are doing. I just need you to openly give a fuck and then to shut up and just listen to the plight (laughs) of folks who have lived here for so long about the shit that we go through that you assume you might know. I'm going to read a... uh Five graphs from a story. I'm not going to tell you where it's from because it'll give away the team. I'm going to want both of your and Bill you as well, and I'll, I'll give mine at the end. The reaction, this is, uh, let's just say this is a control example, okay? <clears throat> Although the Crimson Tide football team generally doesn't come out on the field until after the national anthem is played due to a predetermined pregame schedule, Alabama head coach Nick Saban said he's open to listening if his players approached him with any protest ideas. Quote, I would, first of all, listen to what the players had to say and really try to understand their point of what they want to do and respect their opinions and what they need to do, Saban said on Monday. Look, I've never been in a lot of these situations that are occurring now. The only situation I was ever involved in, I was a student at Kent State and the National Guard was there and we had an unfortunate incident, end quote. Saban was at a college exposition, obviously, in 1970, Kent State shooting. Uh, then he continues on with a quote. A quote, I would do the best I could to try and understand why a player would want to do that, Saban continued. I do think that everyone's entitled to individual differences and in believing what they want. I really do. Then here's the transition point, and this is where your opinion will come in. That said, <laughs> Saban made, <laughs> that, that said, Saban made it clear the program generally tries to avoid individuals placing their own political agendas above the team. Quote, we have never used our team here to demonstrate that myself, Saban added. You've never heard me comment politically on anything. We try to keep things to be team things and for guys to try and respect that. End quote. I will add as an asterisk here just for the, just for the flavor of conversation. It's long been held in college football circles, and this is actually a game that we've played uh, at, at media gatherings. Uh, pick the Democrat head coach, uh, like a Power <laughs> Five head coach that picks Democrat. And because he, uh, we're we're pretty sure that Saban hails directly from Blue Dog Democrats in the in the coal country. So yeah, um, I, I found it very funny that he stuck politics in there as he sits obviously on a big fat red buckle on the big fat Bible Belt. So uh, we'll go around real quick. Uh, Tyler, you can go first. Uh, good, bad, indifferent, example, frustrating. What? What the fuck was that? I mean, like, <laughs> like, like. I, I, that was honestly funny as shit. And Nick Saban eventually is going to run for, like, probably some type of blue Democrat, like, con- congressional county somewhere and get elected all the way in and sound just like Mo Brooks. But, like, the thing is, like, you just sound dumb as shit. Like, yeah, I profit off the backs of all my black athletes, and I've made so many black stars in the NFL that constantly bring back to the Alabama brand, and we win all these goddamn championships and have this multi-million dollar factory upon slave work where we don't play, pay our kids. But nah, nah, nah. If you make, like, a political statement and shit about, like, I don't know, your skin tone that I'm making bread off of, we can't fuck with that if that's not a team issue. But, like, if 70% of my team happens to be the same way you are, then isn't that a team issue? Right, no, no, okay, right, gotcha, So it's the that said, excuse me, it is the that said transition point. It's just... Where I paused and said that said Saban made it clear the program generally, because he's doing it, he's he's surprisingly and shockingly, just just coming from a college football world where we know the kind of insane amount of micromanagement that he is able to exert on his players, on his coaches, on human beings, I mean, it's... So the stories that have come out of his programs for years have always been consistent in the amount of stuff that you generally wouldn't believe. And here he is laying personal expression and personal freedom out as something that he apparently rewards players. He probably could have stopped there. Yeah. He probably could have was, stopped right there. I had hope. I, I honestly, I honestly had hope that like, as you kept talking, Godfrey, I was like, Oh, this is, this is all right. Like, this is all right. And yeah, then this is why I didn't want. This that. is why I didn't want you guys to read it up front because it feels like it's he's headed down the right path. 
Do you think, all right, Richard, do you think that he makes the transition? Is it a CYA move because you've got blue labor and red ownership? Is it that simple? Uh, yeah, I think that, first of all, let's get this out of the way first. First of all, even if he even if he would have stopped before the problematic point that we are talking about, if you think for a second Nick Saban was going to bring 105 Alabama football players onto the field before the national anthem so that 70 or 80 of them or however many players in that group were going to protest, you're out of your mind, all right? That's not a part of the process. Nick Saban ain't about that, um, no matter what it is that he's saying in the media right now. It, it, it's, it would, I think he would think that it would detract from the game and make Alabama not uh, be able to be optimum killing machine Alabama. So I, I think he got to a point where he was saying these things and then you, you, and I think it's the same place that Cam Newton was a couple weeks ago when he made his comments that, that you're, you're just kind of hedging and it's like a, it's like a yeah. mental ding goes off in your mind and it's like, Oh, like I've, 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 I've gone so far down this road there is going to be a a blowback. I've got to I've got to appeal to that that factor that 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 section of fan base, um, donor base, um, his uh, his employer and his uh, the, the people that pay his salary. Like he, it dinged that in his mind that he's got to appeal to them too. And so he threw that other thing in there so as to not make the whole thing problematic. Yeah, but so I, would, I, would, I would find that to be pathetic, honestly. Not, not that you're wrong, but I would find that to be pathetic. The reason I use this example, again, is because, and, and Richard, you know this, and Tyler, you know this, even not covering college football day in and day out, no one exercises more control than Nick Saban, right? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not using this to pick on Alabama, but shouldn't he, of all people, he's God, Right. Yeah. X amount of national championships and NFL draft picks, more revenue than any other college program over the last X years, right? This is it. This is the standard. I, I don't go 12 hours. I don't go an hour in my job without someone invoking Alabama in some way. So shouldn't he, of, of anybody, have the equity to say they can do what they want and leave it yeah, at I that? Think, well, yeah, I think that's honestly, the point. That's kind of the point, ahead. right? It's like he has so much equity. He's like, damn, why would I change shit? I'm rich. Yeah, this, I think- this, this is like no point. <laughs> I, I like the ding idea. I think that was basically as he was speaking, he was like, wait, okay. Um, he, he was starting to project forward and realizing, okay, I don't want, I don't want any boosters or, or donors uh, calling me. And I don't want 70 of my athletes or whatever that percentage is, 70 of my athletes coming into my office suddenly and saying, hey, we want to do something about this. And so, yeah, he kind of threw that hedge in there to kind of just uh, – I'm picturing that as him trying to like realizing he might have just made his own life a lot more complicated and trying to tamp it down a little bit, but – um, I, you know, I, I do think he is, that's, you know, one of the things I try to, to think about a lot is, the, um, okay. So like wh- how, how does this get better? Uh, you know, in the most realistic possible way. Cause like some issues, you know, we, we can talk about, uh, you know, gun control for instance, we can talk about like, Oh, if, if we all agree there's a problem and clearly in this country we don't, um, you know, here are some of the things other countries have done. Here are some of the things that we could use, start to do to start kind of addressing the issue or curbing the issue. That's the way it is for a lot of issues. This one is, you can't say, I mean, if we want to specifically talk about the policing side, we can say here are some things that work better than others. That's fine. But in terms of just hearts and minds and uh, all of the, the more, far more abstract things that are involved in this conversation, I don't... I can't look forward and just say, hey, you know, 20 years from now, this will have happened and everything will have gotten better because it, it, it improves in teeny tiny little increments over tens and 20, uh, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 years. Um, well, that's I think really- the, the, the thing is, and you, you hit on it, I, it's, it's the incremental kind of pace of change. I know a lot of people don't believe in inevitable change. Um, I, I kind of do. Maybe I'm just a stupid optimist. Um, but I, but I do tend to err on the side of inevitable change. Um, but that takes a while and you got to do stuff. People got to do stuff to get it there. Um, I, I think that when we talk about hearts and minds, man, like, like just if you're white and you're listening to this, this is the bar we're trying to get 
America to clear right now, first and foremost. Just stop shooting and killing us in the streets for a petty theft or a traffic ticket. That's it. That's we let us start there and we'll work the other shit out as it comes along. That is the bar we're trying to clear, and it should be such a low bar for this, the greatest country in the world. I mean, and and for me, I don't even think, like, I don't even think my bar is, like, stop shooting us. Because, I mean, like, (laughs) yeah, stop shooting us and shit. That's dope. I think, like, my bar kind of becomes even the level of conversation that we have, the parenting that we have, and kind of what goes on within the small circles of, like, dissent of the majority. So... We can't really boil up to the point of stop shooting us if we can't even go to college with kids who were parented all of two decades earlier by people who fail to make it very clear to their kids what country they live in, where they live at, etc. We can't get to the point of stop shooting us if we still have communities where we grow white people that have never seen black or brown people until they're 15 or 16 years old. Yeah. We can't get to stop shooting us if we still have an educational system, especially within the South and certain urban environments, where we're still learning about the war of northern aggression instead of the civil war. We cannot get to stop shooting us until people who come to power like Nick Saban or, or a Harbaugh or even Jerry Richardson or even Cam Newton get to a point where there is some type of, like, I don't know, derision on a conversation that should be very simple. That black people have been oppressed forever. That black people will continue to be oppressed forever until the shift in conversation, the shift in dialogue, and the shift in cognition around this thing changes, even an inch. And until we get to that... We're always going to be saying, yo, dog, stop shooting us because I was reading a book in a car, because I wanted to get Skittles, because I, I pulled over and complied, because of a plethora of things that have just become mantras within this new age of activism that black people feel sick about the monetized, revolving door that is our death. We're tired of yeah, this shit, fam. As, as somebody who grew up in a town of uh, like 10,000 people uh, and more Native Americans than African Americans in Western Oklahoma... Um, I can say like when you know just when I when I go back and visit or whatever it, it is it's an exposure thing as much as anything we don't not have I, I one of the more demoralizing things I've come to realize over the last 20 30 years or whatever is we don't have as much empathy as we think we do um and we we spend so much time in our own heads and when we don't have exposure to other people other cultures other whatever we that's when we fall back on the stereotypes and that's when if we decide to become a cop uh we you know we we think of this more as like combat training than protecting and serving and and i i I know this is, I love this group that we have here because it's, you know, too black, too white, too old, too young, two sons of cops, two sons of not cops. It's a nice little mix, but, um, like that's, I, I think that's the, the biggest thing here is, um, I don't remember who I was talking to, uh, last year. I think, um, somebody basically said, you know, forget the Peace Corps, forget anything else. The best thing we could do for our country is have like a mandatory HBCU exchange, uh, where <laughs> white people, where white people spend a semester at an HBCU and come to realize that, Hey, everyday life, culture, it's, it, it, it's not, you know, the, the stereotype covers like 0.001 of it. Uh, you know, there, it, it, it's just life. Uh, and we Man, just, if that happened, HBCU would actually get a television contract. That's right. I mean, probably. Or just some money to give to their black kids who trying to go to college and shit. Um, let me push it forward a little bit. Um, if for nothing else than to answer the silent question in, in the back of many football fans' minds, which is, how much longer are we going to have to put up with this? And that's what they're <laughs> probably secretly thinking. Uh, what is the next phase of this? Because it, again, maybe, I, I don't know if it's naivete or cynicism, it, it went further than I thought it would, which is, I guess, a compliment to college football. I don't know if I'm ready to go that far yet. It's persisting on other platforms, which I definitely expected it to, what happens next? Because this doesn't feel like something that's uh, cyclical or finite. I mean, it's probably silence because the NFL is going to let all this shit go on for the next, I don't know, March. And then they're going to have players meetings and they're going to have owners meetings and they're going to have these meetings, these internal meetings they've already been having with right. like executives, personnel, like just anybody who ain't black in the NFL. So anybody who has power in the NFL. So, they're going to find a way to tell everybody to shut the hell up next year. They're going to find some way to either find or implicate that there's a problem if you do this in the open. 
And then all that shit gonna get shut down. And then college football, which has always been like a plantation system upon which we just take these black kids and monetize off them, they're just probably gonna go back to business and be like, yeah, y'all, if you do this, I'm gonna make sure somebody gets suspended for a game. Fuck y'all. Like, like no, nobody's really gonna be cool about this once we're all done with this. So it still lacks a dynamic turning point. And, and we, we kicked this around a lot last year during the, you know, everything that happened in Missouri for about a two-week span it was the first time where I talked to people in positions of authority in college football where it had never even been spoken about in private circles that I, that I can float in. But not only was it spoken about, but it was, it was, it was worried about. And that's the idea of a strike, a, yeah. a unified protest, a shut, a labor shutdown, essentially. I mean, if you, if yeah. you, if you were to use the, if you were to use the labor model as a parallel, uh, I would assume it would probably take something more. May, I, I don't know if, it could be anything. It could be the Heisman winner getting up. When you talk about open platforms that you get, you don't get many. I'm, I've been in pretty much every public platform setting that you can be in in college sports, all the way up into including the draft, and there's just not that many platforms that are afforded to, to athletes. I would assume, and I'll, I'll take y'all's input on this, you have a Heisman winner who says something about it, that sticks. It's sort of, you can't really remove that. You can't edit it. You can't change it because that's one of those few moments in this sport where you afford a student athlete total attention. I mean, if you really think about it, it doesn't happen all but never. Yeah, I mean, I, mo- I yeah most of those feature stories we see on like game day, those are heavily, heavily produced. And I'm not sliding my friends at ESPN. What I mean by that is the school has their hand on right. the editorial content. Yeah, I think that here for for I think for the listener, when we talk about as media members. If we are, if you're in a media scrum um, with player X at any post game or even just like a regular Tuesday press conference, there is one, two, if not three um, school representatives, school PR representatives that are standing in the scrum or even right next to the player, maybe slightly off camera, um, that is monitoring everything that's said. And as soon as, and again, I went to Florida, covered Florida. Um, and so I can speak to Florida and, and kind of the SEC mentality. Um, as soon as anything goes in a way that veers off football, it is, it is last question. It is just one more, guys. And then the player is hurriedly run out of the room with no follow-ups and the jig is up. Like, that's how – that's a lot of the way business is done day in, day out for these beat writers. So I think part of it is – I think these questions may not even be asked of some of these players on a normal Tuesday preference conference in a normal post game, because I think a lot of these beat writers know that it's just going to get shut down or know that they're not going to get an answer. Or maybe even they even feel like this was just a conference game against, you know, Indiana and it doesn't matter. And so that's kind of, I think, a way that kind of in the normal everyday transaction between the media and these athletes, that's another way that I think the, the message is, is silenced or that these issues aren't even raised. Yeah, I think the big flashpoint out there is what happens if um, instead of like a Missouri thing, we're on a, well, I guess it was like a Saturday night when, uh, no, they played on Thursday. So it was Saturday night and they, you know, whoever tweets it first, they, they, they come out in support of the uh of the protest. And then they, you know, the next day they announced that there's a team boycott and everything. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the biggest flashpoint possible is that they kind of do that under, uh, in silence among each other. And then they just don't show up for the game. Um, and that's, that's, I don't know what happens after that, but that's, you know, that's the thing that would, that would cause something to happen, whatever that actually is. I keep uh, asking that meet- question, Bill, and no one – it's funny, and I'll, just, I'll throw this out publicly. I'll tell you what, because if you're listening to this and you happen to be someone I do talk to regularly, I challenge you to answer me, at least as much as you know. The economic impact of one protest game, just on the college level, and let alone – the NFL would be much yeah. larger because of the yeah. interwoven contracts. But just on the collegiate level, I think to Tyler's point, if – not, not, not that you need something more dramatic, but it does definitely stand a chance of fading out versus creating anything lasting at this moment. If that's the case, then it does need something more dynamic. And when you start – here's a fun thing about – here's a true maxim about all sports. When you start losing folks' money, things change. Yeah. It's that yeah. simple. 
And I, th- I was watching it. Like, I think it's kind of, in the NFL at least, it's almost kind of blown over, I think, kind of. Because I was watching the Monday Night Football game last night, and Monday Night Football, they, they show the national anthem in its entirety. Um, and, like, they just, they, they kept it on the singer the whole time. Um, from what I saw, I saw most of it because I ran in from the other room when she started pl- when she started singing the national anthem. So I saw most of it, and they didn't even show the players. And like week one and week two, um, they were panning the sidelines for anybody <laughs> true, kneeling yeah. down. And but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's blown over, right? It just means that somebody what? made that phone call and said, "Hey, yo, listen, what you ain't going to do is pan toward the sidelines no more because we tired of that shit." That's kind well, of right, what that is. That's that's blowing over. It, 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 that doesn't mean like everything's fine now. It just means we're here. Oh, okay, we're going okay. to control it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's <laughs> not being shown, and so essentially it's blown over because it's not in the consciousness. Right. Right. Which is funny. Better, it, right. It's funny you guys are actually bringing up another point. It becomes a dangerous line for media partners too. Um, Vox Media is a lot of things. It is partially owned by Comcast, which is vested with NBC Universal. Uh, it's a wonderful, super efficient grid, and it's, uh, you know, corporate synergy is great, guys. But uh, it, it does have a partnership with the NFL on Sunday nights. So I guess we would would say that in the interest of disclosure. However, um, that's an interesting point that you guys bring up. If at a certain point there were ever, I don't know, trace amounts of evidence that there was collusion to that fact, it would probably look worse for the media company than it even would for the sports league. The thing is that, like, and I, I said this on a different podcast uh, for our, with, our, with uh, our NFL team. It goes it goes back to giving a fuck, right? So within some type of corporate hierarchy, no matter what team or media organization that you're on, somebody really ain't down with this shit. So the thing that I kind of ask, I don't really give a fuck if coaches don't get down with this. I don't give a fuck if PR people don't get down with this. I don't give a fuck if anybody on your football team does not get down with this. Like maybe the white guys that still like play in the NFL, like the other 30% of dudes in the NFL, I really could give less of a shit if they really get down with this. What I care the most about is the discourse. So the thing is this, if you are a white guy writer and you happen to be a little bit pissed off over the fact that these players are doing this, like pissed off in a good way, that it makes you mad, that you didn't realize this before, that you feel galvanized to do some shit, that's great. Don't go write your game story after the game is over. Go write some real shit. Go ask these players what they feel in the wake of Terrence Crutcher or Keith Scott or, I don't know, pick 900 names of people who have gotten killed over the last year by police. Pick somebody, pick something, and if you see somebody taking a kneel or making a protest or taking a stand, how about you actually use the power you have with your pen and give a fuck? Because you saying something on Twitter or you saying something to somebody else or you not adding to the conversation is not really helping anybody. But if you work for a major newspaper or a major corporation, maybe somebody don't want you to do that work and that's fine. But what I'm asking you is if you actually genuinely give a fuck the way that other people do, and I'm not just saying like folks of color who do this job that care about our own stories enough to tell them, put our jobs on the line for it. I'm saying give a fuck so much that you write something in the New York Times, the Washington Post, something actually coherent on ESPN about race. Do me that favor. Just do me that favor and write about us. And then we'll start to change how much that giving a fuck goes. Because I really don't care about these tweets no more. I actually was kind of, this is um, Gary Pinkle last year. It was clearly not really, you know, he's, well, he's old white Republican coach. um, I'm pretty sure. And uh, I was kind of proud of how to, how he handled everything because he, he clearly like uh, you know they have the team meeting on Sunday morning and he basically supports him and they take that picture that goes around and later he finds out that wait what what hashtag what's what's a hashtag uh, and found out that you know Black Lives Matter or whatever was in there and, and that got him into trouble and so he's trying to he's sort of trying to walk it back but at the same time I mean they he let Charles Harris and, the, and Ian Simon and those guys go down and talk to the media in front of the you know, he basically. He, his recruiting pitches always it always dealt around the idea of family. Like you come here and you're going to be treated like family. And it seemed like he had a reckoning where he realized if I'm going to treat these guys, these guys like family, I got to let them speak their mind about things I don't understand very well. Um, and that you know now you know a year later now they've kind of they they have an internal process now. If you've got you know it's it's going to be like the NFL, like everything else, it's going to be internalized as much as possible, which technically isn't nothing because if it's a good discourse among athletes and coaches and whatever, that's 
fine. It doesn't have to be public, I guess. But um, I thought that was, you know, he, he basically, he was caught up in something he really had no experience dealing with, and he decided to, to let his players talk to a certain degree uh, instead of trying to control the message or deciding he absolutely knew better than them. And that's really, I think, for coaches – when you when you think about the background of, of coaches that are, are leading teams uh, in the current uh, college football, I think that's basically that's step one. That's the, that's what you have, we have to ask for right now, and I would hope that more people would would show that. And without the hedging of uh, the the late the the last part of that Nick Saban statement, I'm going to be really interested to see how a recruiting cycle goes through with all this because we glossed over it at first, and and I, I spoke to how I thought a lot of this was disingenuous because it was related to recruiting. But, you know, recruiting season is when there's a level of interface between these coaches and these families and two distinct cultures that really may pretty much never, ever happen outside <laughs> of that. Um, that's always been my, you know, the other kind of, well, the, the only really horse I ride into major arguments with the media and, and college football establishment is compensation of players. And if you shut down college football tomorrow, um, among the other things that happen, if you shut football down tomorrow, and I'm not speaking from a health reason, I'm just talking about those who would clutch pearls and say that it's nothing more than a degree mill and uh, you know it, it's, it's devaluing the emphasis of an education, those people aren't entirely wrong. But when I argue about a kid's family getting 10 grand, 15 grand, or 50 grand over four years sent to them by a booster at a university so that kid can play running back or DB or whatever – um, that, that's really where their moral objection starts. And I, I just always, I asked them, I said, if this didn't happen, and this is not the most ideal for, way for this to happen, but I've also been to parts of the country and lived in parts of the country where I know this to be true. If you take all this away, that's the only time ever that those communities interact with each other ever unless legally yeah. mandated. And when that happens, it when you take away interaction and communication on those levels, and really, to be honest, when you take away the privileged community's need of something from the underprivileged community, whatever that is, that's when things tend to get a lot worse. And that same sort of idea applies here in that, I mean, I'm not really trying to put all this on the shoulders of 16-year-olds, but at the same time, I'd be fascinated to know what a 16- or 17-year-old thinks of all this right now, especially those who are occurring favor with some of the most powerful people in the industry. God, for you, that only be- happens at Ole Miss. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think for, for a 16-year-old, and, and somebody, one of you guys mentioned it earlier. I think it was Tyler that mentioned it. Um, for just a, a beat writer to show that they cared, um, I think if you walked into a 16-year-old's house and you're a recruiting beat reporter and you asked that family, mother, father, and, and son, um, about the talk, like what, because as a, as a young black man, the talk in my house was how not to get shot by the cops. <clears throat> and, and that's just, it's, you are opening up as Tyler would mention the discourse. You are bringing people in. You have this platform to see like, look every day, black families across this country. My mom called me two weeks ago. Um, and, and, and again, reiterate this because now I live a thousand miles away from home. Um, but if you walk into a, a black home and you listen to how they talk about race and how they talk about their standing in the culture and how they talk about getting their son out of the community to do better and to get out and to not get trapped by, you know, whatever the stereotypical, the gang culture or the whatever. Um, if you're a media member, do that. And then you, you elevate in these kids' minds what they can do, what they can say, and you empower them as they go into these environments. I think that would be that would be such an interesting thing to see how you know the news media would go about that. You know, I hope they don't bungle it, but you know, whatever. Also, I would highly encourage anyone listening who's involved in administration at any public university to contact the fine college football staff at SP Nation. If you have a program that's set up on specifically how your enrollees and how your new freshman student athletes deal with the police in your community, by all means, why don't you give one of us a call? We'll come yeah. right about it. Also, the other thing, too, is, like, let's stop having these conversations in private. 
I love so much that as this discourse kind of began this summer because a lot of athletes were like fed up after Alton Sterling and Philando Castile happened in a magnanimous way and they saw it all and within one week that was kind of the tipping point for people who aren't as plugged in but the thing is like let's not have these conversations in private let's not do what black and brown folks have always done at their dinner tables or in the morning or most of the times during the day when it comes to grappling with their black or brown morality let's have these conversations in public let's not go behind closed doors and talk to police chiefs who probably have a biased view for how you should have police community relations because it's failing in our country Let's talk to people who are actually affected by police, that are actually affected by the systemic oppression that goes on to black and brown people in the United States, that are affected by the majority just walking around with that privilege that we can't get, you know what I'm saying? Like, let's start having this dialogue in public, because the more that we kind of put this behind this shroud of, like, of like, like, like anonymity, that's, like, not doing anything for the culture. It's not doing anything for conversation. It's not doing anything to push anything forward except in, like, a small, minute municipality somewhere we ain't going to talk about until somebody gets shot and killed. So let's put this in the open. And the other side of that is if you are somebody who finds yourself in a rage after these kids or these men or these women happen to take a kneel or throw a fist up, then something is not wrong with them. Something is wrong with you. And I highly suggest vodka because it helps. Yeah, I, like, it's, it's so much easier to like. You, this requires uh, so many people, uh, every race, gender, etc., to to ask questions of themselves, and that's really not very fun. So it's a lot easier to just say the flag's awesome, and don't you dare desecrate the flag, um, than actually ask questions of yourselves and and ask yourselves questions about the people represented by the flag. But uh, so we've we've passed 50 minutes. We're approaching 55 here. Um, my joke when we were setting this up was this is this is basically a thousand hour conversation. I'm just curious which hour comes out. But uh, I do want to make sure, you know, I, I like Richard said, I, I am kind of an optimist by nature. And I like to think that there's uh, pr- that at some point in the in the near or distant future, we'll be able to kind of look back on on certain things that happened as as you know, like kind of a backwards time because we all moved forward. Um, in your mind, like twenty years from now, we look back on this um, in the in the best case scenario, in the happy version. What has changed over the twenty years in in you know in, in twenty thirty six? What has changed over the last twenty years to make things? better uh than you know we it's been exposed that they are right now uh, i think I'll, go ahead richard i i think that like it, it's you know we talked about low bars to clear earlier you know <laughs> i when we talk about policing and, and how we view policing like it it shouldn't need a a video for us to get you to understand that something's wrong here that something's going on like we shouldn't have to to have the, the video footage of black men getting killed with their hands up or with their backs turned to police for, for us to get people to, to care and to understand. Like I shouldn't have to be on this podcast on October 4th, 2016 telling you that, uh, you know, when I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, three years ago, a cop said to me, to my face, um, that he would be justified in shooting me because I was trying to understand why he was detaining one of my friends after we got out of a bar. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't have to give you this nuts and bolts over the top uh, example to get you to understand what we're up against. You should be willing to listen anyway. We shouldn't have to crowbar the door open uh, of the discourse to get you to listen. You should want to listen because we are your fellow men and women. Just because we look differently from you shouldn't, shouldn't. And just because you're not from the hood, it shouldn't mean that, that you can't listen to us. And that's where, you know, that's where I hope we are in 20 years. Uh, I'm a born pessimist. So I would say just <laughs> on the other side of that, I would say it's not going to change. Uh, you said 2036 model bill. So 20 years, sure, I would yeah. say, um, um, until until it affects revenue, until it affects yield, and until it affects the corporate structure. Just only to shrink this down for a second for the sake of this podcast, in the context of college athletics and professional sports, you have to affect, you have to affect a capitalist model in order for it to change. Um, and it's a cruel thing to say, and it has absolutely nothing to do with any of the 
uh, the, the human focus that Richard or you just gave, but it's also, to me, it's the truth. The, good of, the, the, the goodness of heart in the ideal situation is just, it's, it doesn't drive much other than idealism for me. So at this, in this specific parameter of college athletics especially, you have to affect the money. It's, it's really the only reason we've ever seen change for the better, for the more humane in this sport at all is because it affected the, it affected the bottom line. I have a, from, a, from a college football uh, standpoint and viewpoint more than anything else, yeah, I totally buy that. Uh, mine was more of like a 30,000-foot level, like yeah. how do we affect oh, yeah. change absolutely. You know, yeah. person to person. But, yeah, I, like, I jive with that, you know, absolutely. It's a couple schools started getting black people in the 60s and realized that, you know, <laughs> there's a wealth of talent here. Let's tap into yeah. it. And so they integrated the sport. Like, let's call it what it was, all right? Looking at you, Notre Dame, Army, et cetera. Your records before black people weren't playing the sport don't really mean shit to me. I mean, the other side of this, too, is like, I'm going to be 43 still writing about this shit. So, ain't much really going to change. I mean, we just going to find a new way to tell black people they not shit. So, ain't nothing really going to change. Like, I mean, I think the difference between now and what? the 90s is we have more quote white people more quote woke white people excuse me but like that don't really mean nor do shit it just you just got some woke white folks so like you actually need some of these dudes to die and you need some of their kids to die and you need some of those last offspring of other kids to also die so until all of that shit starts happening this is going to be the same conversation the next 10 years, the next 20 years, the next five years, tomorrow, whatever. This is what it's going to be because at least for, I don't know, 16, 19, this has been the general reality for black people. We was in chains, then we couldn't vote, then we died early, now we're making another movement, and we're getting shot by police. Maybe in 20 years, we won't go to jail as often. Maybe 20 years after that, we'll get some good books for our educational system. And maybe 20 years after that, schools will stop resegregating. And then maybe 20 years after that, I mean, do you see the trend? Like, do, There is still a lot of shit that we have to get accomplished before it is like cohesively agreed upon that black and brown people ain't going through shit. And the sad part about some of y'all who probably don't get this is that your small little oasis and in, 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 in mirage of sports being like, not including everything else that goes on in the rest of the country is like super fallacious. So, I mean, we still going to talk about this shit, fam. It's going to be your college football. It's going to be your NBA. It's going to be your NFL until black people get some real dope rights in this country and stop getting shot by police. Let's just isolate. I'll isolate that last response if for the inevitable email that we get. That wasn't a tech. That said, I said I'll just isolate Tyler's last response there for the inevitable email that we get. Okay, that wasn't a technical note. That was actually like legit. Like when people, because I'm sure we'll have some pushback. And I'm actually, and I don't want to say this to be combative to an audience and make an assumption yet, but I, I will be curious as to people's feedback on this because our show, up until this point, is I mean, well, we've definitely brought in some pretty serious stuff. But this is, it's grown to a point where, and, and just to kind of wrap this up, it's it, it grew to a point where it was obnoxious to ignore it, even in, even when you strip the context of college football down to its pure game. Just the pure game. Even then, I, I don't think it was it was something you could ignore. Which, if anything, maybe to to, to step off my pessimism for a second, is a sign that things ha- things are 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 changing or things are or at least being pushed in that direction. So, um, Bill. <laughs> um, yeah, I I um I always had this like I growing up or whatever, or even really after college, maybe. Um, Longer than I should have. I always kind of viewed sports as a way to kind of separate that. That's your that's your avenue for uh, being petty and immature and, and holding grudges that don't really mean anything and, and getting all that out of your system. That so you could be a more uh, well-adjusted human in real life. Um, I don't uh, call me crazy. I don't think it actually works that way. Um, it, it just basically exposes that it's really fun to be petty and um, hold grudges and and basically treat everything as a team sport where I really, I don't care about, uh, you know, society as a whole. I just want my team to win. Uh, and that's uh, that has bled over into basically every aspect of life. It sure as hell has bled over into politics uh, and everything else. And it's um, kind of hard to accomplish anything good ever. Said the optimist. All right. Um, so real quick, let's do the um, let's do the corporate thing and plug everything. 
You can find Tyler's piece. Um, if you hear this in the first probably 48 hours, it's out. It'll be up on the main page at SB Nation. Uh, we will put a link to both Tyler and Richard's piece in the actual PAPN entry at SB Nation for this. Um, you can follow Tyler at Tyler Ricky Tynes on Twitter. You can follow Richard at RJ underscore rights, W-R-I-T-E-S on Twitter. You can follow the robot Bill Connolly at SBN underscore Bill C. That one I've memorized now, Bill. Sweet. And you can follow myself um, at 38 Godfrey. Uh, guys, thanks for, uh, thanks for hanging out with us on this afternoon. We, uh, we managed to, to cobble together a podcast. Yeah, and, man. And, and thanks for the 21 Savage recommendations there, Tyler. You can send me any more that you feel you. Good God. <laughs> if anything happened today, it was, it was that statement just now. That 21, was, 21, that, 21. Oh, my God. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate you guys.